0: Welcome to the Eater Upsell, beautiful Eater Upsell listeners. On today's episode, Greg and I are talking with Wolfgang Puck, who is sitting right here with us in the studio. Hi.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Good to be here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> We're so excited to talk to you, and we will talk to you in just a second before we have this amazing conversation that is, I have a feeling, going to go to really exciting places. A quick reminder to everybody who's listening that if you are not already subscribed to the Eater Upsell, hit that subscribe button on your phone. And if you are already subscribed, give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store. And if you've already done both of those things, tell like five to six friends how much you love this podcast and recommend that they spend some we'll time We'll put it, it
1: up at the restaurant so everybody will know. Yeah, it. yes. yeah. It's
0: also going to be on the wall at yeah. all of Wolfgang Puck's restaurants. On the menu.
1: On the menu. There we go. Right
0: underneath the smoked salmon pizza at Spago is listen to the Eater Upsell. It's Absolutely. complimentary. This is, in fact, a free podcast. And the more of you who listen to it, the more likely it is to remain both in existence and at zero cost to all of us. So, Wolfgang Puck. Welcome to the Eater Upsell.
1: Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be here in a whole new medium for me. You know, when I grew up and I was your guys' age, that didn't exist. So now it's a different story.
0: Podcasts are the bold new frontier of communication. Yeah. Well, um, if you're listening to this podcast, you have assuredly heard of Wolfgang Puck, who has many, many, many restaurants as well as lots of additional endeavors alongside. But tell us— what you do for a living?
1: Well, first of all, you know, I started as a young kid at 14, as a, a cook apprentice in Austria. And I went to France and then uh, worked there for seven years in some of the best restaurants. Mm-hmm. Then came to the United States and worked in Indianapolis for a year and then in L.A. at Mamaison for six years. And then I opened my first restaurant in 1982. Before both of you were born, probably.
2: I we were we were both born, born in, 82. In, 82, so okay. so we're in eighty two, yes, actually. So we're Spago babies. Yeah, we came yeah, of okay. age
0: with with your restaurant career.
1: Okay, so in nineteen eighty two, in January, I opened Spago, which means it's thirty five years old now, which is really the most amazing thing because. Uh, having the longevity is really the hardest thing in the restaurant business. And then we open more restaurants, like we opened Chinois in Maine, and then uh, I opened Post in San Francisco, Spargo in Tokyo, Spargo in Las Vegas. About 10 years ago, we opened the first cut in uh, Beverly Hills at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And that's
0: your steakhouse.
1: That's our steakhouse. Our take on having great meats and appetizers, main courses, side dishes, desserts, and then... Uh we started to expand that a little bit because in 2008 when the economy went down, I said we have all of our restaurants in L.A. and Las Vegas, six in each city. And then I said we have to expand internationally maybe because if the economy in the U.S. goes down, then we go down. So then we decided to open in Singapore. So we opened cut in Singapore and cut in London and then cut in Dubai. And the last one is cut in New York.
0: Which opened just a few months ago. Just
1: a few months ago, yeah.
0: Well, th- and and in the process of all of these openings too, you have built a, an airport empire, and you have or had. Do you still have your your soup, your line of absolutely? Soups? You know,
1: I have many restaurants, about sixty restaurants in airports. You know, some are expresses, some are sit down where we have a liquor license with a bar. And actually, as we are talking now, my partner is doing a presentation in Denver to get one more location in Denver at the airport and we are doing really well at the so airport. So you still
0: have to go airport by airport. Like yeah. he's he's pitching totally. the Denver airport. Totally
1: each airport commission wants to see me or see one of our people and then we talk what we're gonna do. So like we just opened in Singapore, we just opened in Dubai at the airports, also started to do international airports like that. And obviously in LA we have a new one. And I think it's a really exciting thing because when people are at the airport, you know, you don't have a lot of time to think where you're going to eat. But if you see a familiar name and say, OK, I'm going to have a good pizza or a good chicken salad or a Caesar salad or a soup, it's a perfect way to go.
0: How does it feel to be a person with a familiar name?
1: Well, you know, to me, it's always the same. I'm in the customer service business. You know, I'm in the hospitality business. And, you know, people said, how did it change your life since 35 years? And I said, it didn't change. I love to cook. I love to go to the fish market or the farmer's market in the morning. I like to be in a restaurant. I like to talk to a lot of my young chefs and uh, uh, talk to them about what we're going to do next, how they have to improve, what they have to do. So it's to me, it didn't uh, change since I'm better known. Sure, now people ask for a picture and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's an easy thing for me. So... I love people and it makes it not the problem. I'm not like Sean Penn or somebody, you know, who gets into a fight with somebody because they want a picture.
0: Well, you could. I, I feel g- like you would, you've would. you earned it at this point if you wanted to throw a punch at the next yeah, person. Yeah, but you know what?
1: I have to be an example to the other people. <laughs> then the next chef or the, the manager going to say the same thing or do the same thing. So I think... I really have to lead by example, and I have to really show them that we are in the hospitality business. We have to treat the people special, and they want to come to our place to have an experience. So,
2: Chef, when you walk into one of your restaurants— for the night, and you're there for the night. Like, what's that process like? Can you walk us through, like, what a night is like for Wolfgang well, for, when you're at Spago or you're at Cut?
1: Well, I, I just got here to Cut in New York, and so I get up in the morning. I stay at the Four Seasons Hotel because we are in the Four Seasons Hotel here in downtown uh, New York. That's a nice perk. Yeah, it's a nice—get a free room. Sweet
0: perk. Get a free room. <laughs> I mean, room. I it's not
1: so bad. Yeah, So— Then I go down in the morning, I go in the kitchen, have a a, a coffee with the chef and we sit down and I say, so what's new? Did you see something new at the fish market in the morning or did you get some fresh berries from California or whatever? And then we talk, oh, what could we change? How can we evolve and how can we do different? And we talk about different styles of cooking and since maybe we have some Latin or some Asian influences with our appetizer, for example, appetizers, for example, because the steaks like at cut, we grill them over charcoal wood. And so steak is really a comfort food for many Americans. You know, it's simple. You have the meat and we buy the best meat in the world, you know, from wherever it comes from. So we know that the meat gonna be really good, and because uh, we cook it over charcoal and wood fire, so to me that gives the best flavor. Because most of the steakhouses cook them underneath a boiler, which really dries the meat on the outside and doesn't give it any flavor. So then we talk, and then he shows me some of the dishes he did, and I said, okay, I'm like an editor maybe, and say, okay, I think there are too many ingredients on this dish. Take out a few things, and then we taste it again. And So it goes on. We talk about food is my life.
0: Let's give our listeners like a... A 30-second background on yeah. Spago and its influence.
1: Okay, so when I worked at Mamaison in Los Angeles, before opening Spago, it was a modern French restaurant. I wrote a cookbook about a modern French cuisine for the American kitchen. I opened Spago, and it was totally different. First of all, I wanted to be more casual. Second of all, I built an open kitchen. At that time, it was something brand new. Yeah. Nobody had an open kitchen. The chef wasn't known, really. So then... I was in the center of the dining room. We had a wood burning grill. We had a which was also
0: a new thing, especially in Southern California. Yeah, a wood
1: burning fireplace to make pizzas and roast salmon and lamb in it. Everything. I had in a way a limited menu. Now we had great appetizers. For example, we served raw tuna. You know, tuna sashimi with like a little salad with a little avocado. At that time, no Caucasian restaurant had that. You had to go to a Japanese restaurant to find raw fish. So when people came in and said, oh, my God, tuna sashimi, it was something totally new. Now you can find a restaurant which doesn't have a tuna dish or another one on the menu. I
0: feel like that's the, that's the through line through any description of Spago. It's like this thing which now – is totally boring and every day wasn't well, boring. But, you know, like this is everywhere. There's a wood totally burning common. stove yeah. everywhere. There's uh-huh. an open kitchen everywhere. There's tuna sashimi everywhere. Yeah. But at Spago, it was blowing people's minds.
1: Yeah, totally. So we made pizzas. I love pizzas. I love. I lived in Provence. So we made pizzas. I said, i do not going to make pepperoni pizzas. The first thing I said, I don't want tomato sauce. You know, the traditional margarita pizza, whatever. There are enough places like that already. I don't want it. So I made a pesto. Or I just used really good olive oil. Instead of making pepperoni sausage, I said, I'm going to make a duck sausage. So I boned the duck leg and made the sausage fast, rolled it together and cooked it slowly in the oven, sliced it thin. And people loved it. One day I ran out of bread. I made a pizza and just cooked the shell, put some red onions on top with a little olive oil, And then uh, made a little dill cream with creme fraiche and dill and shallots and a little lemon in it and put salmon on top and then caviar on top. And people said, oh, my God, that's the most amazing thing. And at that time, that didn't exist. Nobody made a pizza different than the traditional Italian style. So we used fresh Santa Barbara shrimp just with a little pesto, almost no cheese. And things like that made a big difference. Even vegetables, it sounds so Silly today. You know, I went to the Chino farm to pick up strawberries. And I still remember Johnny Carson coming to the restaurant and looking at the strawberries. He said, how did you get the strawberries so red? What did you get? I said, well, we picked them ripe. That's easy. He said, oh, my God, mine are half green. where the stem comes out, it's all green and no flavor. And this one is so amazing. He took them home and says, I want to take some strawberries home. i God, going to show my housekeeper how the <laughs> strawberries should look like. I said, well, he won't go to the farm two and a half hours away.
2: As far as I understand, Chef, like, um, you know, this was kind of a big restaurant for, you know, not just the food. I mean, the food being innovative and kind of casual and, yeah. and fun, but also, you know, the person who's cooking it and the people in the dining room and how the whole the kind of The people in the dining room yeah. was
0: huge. I mean, yeah. it, Spago was, I mean, I think in many respects was one of the first cool restaurants.
1: Yeah, not totally, because you had young people and old people loved it. You know, we had people like Billy Wilder. We have people like Swifty Lazar, who at that time were already 60, 70 years old, right. and they loved it. Swifty Lazar decided to do his Oscar party there in 1985 and that brought a whole new dimension. I mean, when we hit at the party, we had 500 people outside cheering on the stars when Richard Gere or Diana Ross or Jimmy Stewart or at the beginning, Cary Grant, they walked down to the restaurant. I mean, it wasn't um, or Michael Jackson or Madonna. You know, they were really young at that time. So,
0: so you have, you in many respects sort of created the modern celebrity restaurant and you have been embedded in the world of Hollywood and celebrity. You cater the Oscars every yeah. year. I mean, you, you are so immersed in the non-food celebrity world. And then you've also been present as the food world has become a realm of celebrity which must have been interesting to Well, you.
1: it's a really interesting story. Obviously, we are in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills or in West Hollywood, where most of the celebrities live in that area. So if I would be in Kansas City, it would be a different story. And if I cook the same food, we wouldn't have Elizabeth Taylor or or Madonna or, or Tom Cruise or somebody come for dinner, you know, maybe once in uh, 25 years if they do a movie there or something. So that certainly helped if you're in L.A. or in New York or in a big city or London, you know for the celebrity aspects of it. But for me, the most important thing was always the food. So when I did the food at Spargo, it was really simple. No fussy preparation. I went to the Japanese fish market, bought a whole fish, and simply grilled them or roasted them in the oven. And I remember people ordered it, and they say, oh, my God, there's the head on it. You know, they, they didn't see a fish with the head coming out. They thought it comes all in fillets. So, it was certainly a different experience, but people loved it, and it was busy, and people came back. We had so many regular people, and then we had a seating order. You know, people had to sit in the front row, you know, next to the window tables. If you didn't give them a window table, it was like Those all Those were the health. hot tables. Oh, my God,
2: you know. They- so when you're talking with a chef or you're going to work with somebody who's going to work at one of your restaurants, um, like, you know, maybe run one of your restaurants or if somebody's going to be a big part of your your kitchens there, like what do you look for creatively? Like what's the thing? um, Is it the ability to follow kind of what you've done or is it, you know, to take a new idea and and surprise you?
0: How do I get a job running a Wolfgang kitchen?
1: All right. You know, it's very easy. Most of the chefs who are in charge of the kitchen, like Raymond, who is in charge here in uh, New York, you know, they work with me about for 10 years maybe. So they're like maybe in their early 30s. And I have some people who started even – 16, 18 with me after high school. So then they have to be creative. I don't want them to just be repetitious and do the same thing. I want them to think and say, okay, this is fresh. What can I do? Or they could think, what would Wolfgang do maybe? But I don't want people who just follow. I want to have a team of young chefs who are creative, who do new things, come up with new ideas. Because mostly... It's the young people who come up with new ideas, with different ideas, with different uh, approaches to look at things differently. And I think uh, not only, like in the media, in your media, very few people who are 70 years old who run uh, a dot-com company, you know, they're all 30 years old or, or less. And I think in cooking, it is the same. Even my son, Bayon, who goes to Cornell, he's graduating this year. So I sent him to Spain to some restaurants. He was in Paris last year. He worked here with Eric Repair and the Alinea in Chicago. So I sent him to restaurants where he can get inspired creatively. Now, doing the chopping and everything, you can tell somebody to do that. But being creative, for me, is the most important part.
0: How do you teach someone to be creative?
1: You know, some people have it and some people don't. You know, some people are good followers and some people are leaders. And I think with creative, is the same. But you have to be exposed to it. If you're not exposed to it, it's really difficult to really think. If you work at the Marriott Hotel or in one of these hotels as a chef, you know, you do not going to be creative. You know, half of their food comes in prepared already, frozen. All you do is heat it up and put it in the shaving dish or whatever. So you do not going to be able to be creative there. But if you work in really great restaurants, that's when you can be creative, and that's where you see creativity. If you work with a great artist or if you work with a great musician, you know, you might be able to get creative. Now, most of the people are not creative. Most of the people cannot write music or most of the people can, can paint very well, but they cannot find their own style. And I think what I did early on with Spago, I found a different style. And then a year and a half later, I opened Chinois. It was different again. So I think you have to really figure it out After learning enough, after getting the basics done, then you have to figure out your own way of doing things.
0: So Cut opened in New York in, was it September or October? October, October. yeah, end of October. It's your first New York restaurant that is not one of the airport ones. Yeah. And it has had a little bit of a rocky reception among the critics. The Times didn't love it. Our own critic, Ryan Sutton, didn't really love it. How, does, how, do you, well, how do
1: you react to that? Well, let me tell you, for me, the biggest critics are our customers. The restaurant is full every night. We could do maybe more for lunch, more customers. You know, I thought the, the critic here took it really personal, and I think he, he is a hypocrite. Really? Yeah, yeah totally. I think he made up stories about, not about the restaurant, but more about personally about me. And I saw him there once and the chef talked to him. He ate everything on the plate and he said everything is delicious and then he wrote a stupid review. <laughs> Do people really care about it? You're talking you know, about
2: Pete, Pete Wells or Ryan
1: no, Sutton? No, Ryan. Ryan. Ryan.
0: Years own Ryan Sutton. Your
1: own Ryan Sutton. <laughs> so I think, well, would everybody like only to get a good review? For sure. But I think some of them, just make up stories to be interesting. I know our restaurant is good. I know good food better than Ryan will ever learn to cook or to taste or anything. He's an amateur, so he doesn't really know. But he wants to sound good. So he wants to be like he's the famous critic or whatever. But I think we buy the best ingredients and we can make a mistake. He could, If somebody writes and says, you know, you overcooked the steak... For me, it wasn't right. I said, you know what? That can happen. But it is a very good restaurant because we have people who come three times a week to the restaurant and love it. Or Pete Wells who talked about the decor. You know, we have a, a very, very important artist in the restaurant uh, on the walls. So could we have some just some pictures of horses and of dogs or whatever? Yeah, for sure. But we have Tracy Eamon who is one of the famous artists. We have... Uh, Julie Meherito, her paintings sell for a million dollars today. Uh, or Alex Israel, who's a young and upcoming artist, but also you know, already uh, uh, represented by the Pace Gallery. You know? So they are important parts. So if somebody criticizes them, which, ha- which they don't know really what it is, I think it's silly. They can say it's not my preference. You know, I don't like this art, maybe. But to say the art is not good you know, if you're a food critic, write about the food. Be honest and say, okay, it's good food or like Ryan used to write more about me because we have a lot of restaurants so they want to have maybe a little hole in the wall or whatever. It's okay. But I think you have to be honest and I think he was very much a hypocrite when he wrote about the restaurant and I don't think it was a fair critic if uh, he would have said this was wrong or that was wrong, but he attacked me personally. So that has nothing to do and I think... You know, when a critic is like that, I lose all the respect. And, you know, he comes to the restaurant. He doesn't going to make us busy or not busy. He, to us, is totally in, unimportant. So, it's, you know.
0: Over your decades of running buzzy, high-profile restaurants, do you feel like criticism has changed?
1: You know what? To me, always, always, we like to get good reviews, good things for sure. You know, every chef, every young chef wants to read something good about what they do. And sometimes they say something bad. But at the end of the day, how many restaurants open where the critics raved about it and they closed? Like I remember a restaurant in Los Angeles called Alma. They opened, I don't know if you ever went to that, down to, on Broadway.
2: I have not, but its legacy sort of looms large on the dining scene
1: right now, I feel like. They know? were
0: hugely influential, had financial difficulties. No, I mean, it was a know, whole saga. You, yes, so sure. they
1: opened up. Bon Appetit magazine wrote the best new restaurant in America. So naturally, I was proud. I said, oh, great, L.A. has the best new restaurant, you know. And so I go there. It was hard to get a table. A year later, it closed down. Guess why? Because the customers did not feel that they got value for what they paid for. So, if like I paid 125 dollars for a menu plus a bottle of wine for 100 dollars, so the bill was like close to 500 dollars. And I said, there was no luxury involved. There was no lobster or Kobe beef or truffles or anything like that. So then customers didn't go anymore. The critics raved about it. It was the best news thing. But you know what? At the end, we have to please our customers. At the end, you have to cook what you like, you know, be innovative, be creative, but also maybe have a little comfort.
2: That is like the story of so many restaurants that we cover on Eater. That thing about they open super hot and everyone goes to them and everyone's tweeting about them and writing about them and then like a year later you know it's like their fate is totally undecided you know
0: I wonder how much of that is is um is our fault Greg like yeah, I wonder it's... how much of that is the news cycle and the 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 universe of food media and the idea that you know the Bon Appetit list they, they called Alma the best new restaurant and Bon App does this list every year and it highlights fantastic restaurants across the country but it's always new restaurants yeah, and it's... so it's this cycle of of endless newness and endless youth, I and know. it can be hard to stay alive.
1: Well, you know what? They, they call them newspapers. They call them news. So you always have <laughs> to write about the news. Who's going to write about Spargo is 35 years old. Now, we always evolve. It's always different. But you know what? We have the best clientele. And last year was the best year we had we ever had in 34 years.
2: Do you still get the celebrities yeah, the place? Yeah, su- for
1: sure. Sure.
2: Who are who they? Are, are
1: actually giving me now a star on Hollywood Boulevard? Are they really? so, I was yeah. going to
2: ask you about that. When is that happening? Do you know? yet?
1: it's a, in April, end oh, of April. Yeah. do you know
2: what stars you will be near?
1: I think I want to be next to the Dolby Theater where I cook yeah, for the Oscars all the sure. time. Sure. Yeah. Are you
0: going to be like? Are you going to be next to like Mariah Carey and?
1: I don't. Know. I don't know. I. I don't know. I'm gonna. I going to i do not even look at them, so no. I have to go look where they're gonna put it. Wow. That's
0: pretty exciting, a star on They the...
1: actually don't tell you, you know. So they said, I told them if, uh, I would like to be there because I'm there. Yeah. So I said, when they have the red carpet, I'm going to cut out the red carpet so everybody can see. Not everyone can <laughs> see, <it>. or like
0: <laughs> walk right all <laughs> With over. With like, right?
1: a mirror there, yeah. But I think in the restaurant industry, and today a lot of young chefs, they cook something different, something which people never saw maybe, but is it really delicious or is it just something new? You know, if it's just new and uh, you're impressed because you never had it, maybe you eat it once the second time you said, OK, I get it. I don't have to go back.
0: Right. The comeback ability thing. I just made up a word. Yeah. But, you know, we had Curtis Stone was on the show Uh last year and and we talked about his restaurant mod, which has a. A totally new menu every month yeah. that's built around a single ingredient. And yeah. he told us like, fairly candidly that part of it is the creative challenge, but part of it also is that by doing a total menu overhaul, he could get his customers to come back more regularly. Exactly. It's a whole new experience, so you can get maybe five or six visits a year out of yeah. someone who might previously have come only once you and know, never come back again. But
1: you need both. So Maud is a very small restaurant. But, for example, we just opened a pop-up in... Uh, in Palm Springs at the tennis tournament, you know, in Indian Wells. Indian Wells. We had a Spargo in the big stadium. Guess what? In the old time, Roger Federer used to come to Spargo before he used to go to Indian Wells. Now he has a family, so they were we are out there. He knew we had Spargo there. And the first thing he said, do you have the Wiener Schnitzel?
0: Right. <laughs> so he is
1: on the road for... A year long, he loves Wiener Schnitzel. He's from the German part of Switzerland, so we already have that dish. And it's a childhood favorite of mine, and his too. So I said, for sure, we'll have the Wiener Schnitzel there. And you know what? He came, came three times during the week with the kids, one time with friends, the other time with Tommy Haas and all these guys. And you know what? He, twice he ordered the Wiener Schnitzel. The first time and then the last time, because he said, you know, that's what I really love. Isn't that and, an
2: off-the-menu dish at Spago?
1: You know, what? I took it off the menu. So many people ask for it. <laughs> it's crazy. I said, I might as well just have it on the menu. So is it
0: on the menu now? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the... yeah. Do you have any regular off-the-menu things?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I when we changed Spargo five years ago, I took up off the... Kaisershmann was our most famous dessert. The smoked salmon pizza, our most famous pizza. A Wiener schnitzel, our most famous thing. Oh,
0: that's a good phone ringer. Yeah. Is it a celebrity?
1: It's Roger oh, Federer, it's, right? It's, it's,
0: it's, it, it's Daniel Balloud. This is the coolest moment. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> we should say hello and have him on the show. Okay. Well, <laughs> Wait. I, okay, I, we're going to call it. Daniel Balloud on the Eater Upsell from Wolfgang uh, okay. No, we're not.
1: He's Yeah, like, no, he's a dear friend <laughs> of mine. And, you know, even like with Daniel, and look with Daniel, they took his star away from him. With Thomas Keller, they took two stars away from him. You know, Pete Wells Yes. Yeah. So...
0: You know what Executioner Pete, man? Yeah. What's the Greg came up with an amazing
1: Pete the Punisher. Name. That's
0: it. Pete. Pete
1: the Punisher. And you know what I think because they know like Thomas or Danielle, they have many restaurants just like I have and uh, I think in a way we are already against the critics. You know they say how can somebody be so successful? I don't want to contribute. Let me Big condemned. so I think it certainly your natural
0: th- enemies. Yeah,
1: you're naturally. I think, and like your guy here. What's his name? Ryan Sutton. Like Ryan Sutton. Yep. Not
0: even important enough to remember. His I know. I,
1: I will forget him. for Ryan is sure. going to
0: love this. Yeah,
1: totally, totally. <laughs> I think he came to the restaurant. He knew already what he's going to write. I don't think that you know to be a critic, to be fair, and to write properly about a restaurant. You know, you can make new sensationalism, which is you know. I pick part of news today and, you know, to me, at the end, it's so unimportant. Ryan is so unimportant to a restaurant because the people come and come back. And that's really what makes a restaurant live for a long time. So if Pete Wells and Ryan and everybody writes a great review, but if the customers don't like it or they say, well, it's just okay, it's new, but I only like it once or twice, it will not make a restaurant successful, and you see restaurants like Thomas Keller, like Danielle, and Eric Ripert and so forth, they are successful in the long run. And that's what I judge and call a success. It's not an overnight thing. It's really being uh, successful for many years. It's just like a marriage. You know, it's easy to have a love affair. It's easy to fall in love with somebody. But six months later or a year later, you start new. But being married, like I had dinner last night with Larry Silverstein. He's married for 61 years.
0: That is so long.
1: I think it is amazing. And they still were holding hands so with him and his wife. So I think it was so sweet to say. And I said, you know, that's a success story, having kids, having grandchildren. You know, if you have eight wives, I don't know if that is a success story. Maybe for some people it is.
0: So you when we were talking about Alma, you mentioned that the menu didn't have traditionally luxurious ingredients on it. I think that in that realm of sort of new high-end dining, the sort of new tasting menu that is kind of taking over the, the heat-seeking part of the dining world, there has been almost an intentional move away from these traditional signifiers of luxury, yeah. the truffles, the foie gras. Do you think that that's sustainable? Do you think it's possible to have a luxurious meal without luxurious ingredients?
1: No, you can have a luxurious meal without luxurious ingredients for sure. Very few people can pull it off, though. Like I went to El Bully, Adrian Ferrand, you know, you could have a dinner there and have a lot of different things. Out of 35 courses, maybe you had one or two more luxurious ingredients, but a lot of them not so. But there are few people in between that, you know, in between having the talent like that to really pull off a whole experience where people come from all over the world to taste it. You know, you have that in Europe where you have restaurants, but most of them have also luxury. Or the table is luxurious, or the whole, the plates are beautiful plates, interesting. Like you looked at the plates Ariane had. You say, wow, I wish I would have thought serving food on a plate like that. So I think, like at Alma, well, the food wasn't bad, it was good. I, didn't, I don't want to say they had not good food, it was good, it was just not the value. You don't want to spend $125 and eat, you know, something you know costs $2 or a dish, you know, or less. So I think, to me, the customers today are smarter than ever. There's so many food shows, so much on television, magazines, and so forth, so people really know about food now. You know, 35 years ago, you could have fooled somebody. Today, it's very difficult. And... I think that's what it really shows at the end of the day. This restaurant, the young people or older people like me might go once and they say, okay, I get it, but I don't have to come back. You know, I want to spend my money. If I want to stay, spend $500 to stay in a room, I stay at the Four season. I don't want to stay in one of these hip hotels where it's all dark, you can't see, and the music is playing so loud downstairs, you can't sleep.
2: So. We were talking about Spago earlier, and that's a restaurant that went through a big, complete reimagining and revamp five years yeah. ago. Um, and you have another restaurant that's almost as old in Los Angeles, Chinois. And I just drove by there a few weekends ago, and I, I was like, oh, is that it? It looks like such a cute little tiny restaurant. And I was kind of reading about the history of it, and I'm just kind of curious, like – What is the relationship, like, what is your relationship to that restaurant? Is that the one that is kind of like, I can't touch it that much, and it's got to kind of stay its own thing?
1: Sooner or later, I'm going to touch it, too. I just have to figure out what exactly do I want to do. It's very limiting. If I touch too much of it in between the health department, the building department, and all that, it's very difficult to get uh, uh, anything done. Then, you know, there's always new laws coming out. So... I'm figuring out what I really want to do with it, you know, how i going to change it, because so many people, when I talk about it, they say, I hope you don't take this off the minute. I hope you don't take the lobster off, I hope you don't take the sizzling fish off, I hope you don't take the lamb chops. so they all want their thing, but at the end, it needs change, it needs an evolution, and I think... As soon as I really make up my mind what to do exactly with it, I will change it and do something different—not different, but still in that vein.
0: Xinhua is um, the restaurant where you introduce the, the Chinese chicken salad, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, speaking of like iconic things from. 12 and 13 year old Helen's life I around that age was introduced to California Pizza Kitchen yeah. which is a chain restaurant that serves whimsical pizzas and interesting chopped salads which in many respects are the two things that kind of boosted your star in the US and I became obsessed with the whole like Chinese chopped chicken salad which I think became a national phenomenon in the what? 90s and you,
1: you know when I it started life, yeah, when I started Spago and then Shinoa. First at Spago, the chef who was the chef who was making pizzas there went with uh, friends of mine, Larry and two lawyers really, and they opened California Pizza Kitchen on Beverly Still Drive. Still
0: so, your style,
1: man. But you know, so they made <laughs> our pizzas, our style of pizzas. Maybe they don't make them with smoked salmon, but really, what we started to make them. Uh, a different California-style pizza. So that's all. The first place really was Spargo. So it grew out of there. And so many other restaurants grew out of Spargo. You know, everybody had to have a pizza open for a while. Everybody had to have a wood-burning grill. And so I think it set a whole new Uh, uh, site for restaurants, you know. Restaurants used to be stuffy. Restaurants had waiters or whatever in black tuxedos and so forth. And I dressed them very casually and I think it was fun. I wanted people to come to a restaurant, have a great food and have fun. You know, you can talk you can laugh you know you are not going to the temple or you're not going to church i mean those
2: spago style pizzas are still so popular at like trendy restaurants and restaurants that we love and write about on eater in new york and la and san francisco often
0: called flatbreads i don't know it's, it's a whole phenomenon it's 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 so i think of this um probably apocryphal anecdote about Madonna this is a very cruel anecdote so I feel like this must not be true but it was this this story that I heard once that when she was just sort of rising to fame she was very very young and becoming internationally famous and she went to see a performance of Hamlet and afterwards was asked how she liked it and she said ah it was full of cliches and, you know, the joke is, like, of course it was, because Hamlet is what created all of it. Like, yeah. every line in Hamlet is quotable and iconic, every plot point. And so much of what you established at Spago and at Chinois has become just table stakes in yeah. the world of, of of dining. Oh,
1: totally. And especially for new media, like either and many other ones. So who actually don't know the history? Most of your customers who are on... Uh, Your medium, you know, they don't know the history. They don't know that when I opened Spargo, goat cheese was something exotic. Sun-dried tomato was something exotic. So, or serving raw fish in a restaurant was never there before. So, I think it's an interesting thing to do actually something where people think it was always like that. In the wine business, the same. I mean, I used to go to a country club with friends of mine who belonged to them. Nobody drank wine. They all had cocktails only with dinner, and it's coming back anyway. But the wine came out. They said, you want Chablis or you want Burgundy?
0: Right. It's like we, we've got, like, bottle A and bottle B. That's yeah,
1: you, so they had two wines, and now all of a sudden, you know, you have wine lists like us at Spargo. We have 3,500 selections. My God.
0: How do you even pick them wow. on that? So you have, a, you have a new project that yeah. is very exciting and, I you know, feels in many ways like you're res- – responding to or embracing a trend that has been developing for a while. You have a, a test kitchen yeah. restaurant.
1: So we open uh, this test kitchen because we always do new things. If it's for the airport or for restaurants, we call it a test kitchen. So now with our young chefs from the Bel Air, Hugo from the Bel Air and Tetsu and Alan and Dave and all these guys, they say, why we don't open it as a restaurant? Okay, so I said, okay, let's open it. How are we going to open a restaurant with eight or ten seats and have six chefs working and two waiters? Sounds great. I know. So now we are opening in, in the end of April, and we call it Rogue, the Rogue Experience. So it's is it named p-
0: after the X-Men?
1: I don't know. I don't even know the X-Men.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Rogue, is, Rogue is an X-Men who has... Um, She's. What's her superpower? I'm not. I. I feel like Doesn't I. Doesn't she know control
2: she, the storm? No, that's. storm. No, that's
0: storm. I think Rogue can't be touched. Ah, that's AP Dan jumping in with it with an explanation of what yeah. Rogue the X Men does. She absorbs powers from other uh, heroes, okay, good. which actually feels uh, yeah. appropriately metaphorical. You're uh, taking no. in influences and synthesizing it, them and, and making them your more own. More than that. That was a reach, know. but I'm going to yeah. go with it. <laughs> okay, sure. No, it's a good <laughs>
1: explanation. So. What happened is, so I have the chef from the Bel Air, from Spargo, from Cut, from our catering, and they cook there. So the chef comes with an assistant. So we have like at least three. So we have six cooks plus a pastry chef. And each one has to make up two dishes or three dishes. And it cannot be something they serve in the restaurant or ever served in the restaurant. It has to be something new, and it has to be delicious.
0: A true test kitchen. A They've true, got to try out new yeah. things.
1: So now you can have a 12-course dinner and have an experience seeing the chef cooking it, plating it right in front of you. So it's really... An amazing experience. We did a few dinners already, and I think people had so much fun, and people said, I can't wait. I mean, I talked to Steven Spielberg, and I said, you know, Steve, what, what do you think about that? You know, would you go to a restaurant? He says, when you're open, I get a few friends together. I bring Tom Hanks. I bring this one, and we all come to the restaurant. That I said, there was only eight seats. I said, it's so okay. So fun.
0: I would like
2: to. Yeah, to I would dinner. like to be a fly on the wall there with all
1: those. I don't, I yeah.
0: just. I want one of the eight seats. I want to yeah. sit between Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Oh,
1: and like yeah, no, no, Steal food sure. off their plates.
2: Yeah. So sp-
1: everybody, everybody <laughs> is excited about it. That's you know? so great. And the most important, I'm excited. You know, at my age, if I would say, okay, you know what, I did pretty well in my life. I'm doing that for 50 years, and I just could stay home and uh, you know play tennis a little bit or go skiing or or hang out with my kids, but I love the evolution. And I love to learn new things. I love to do different things. I mean, in uh, middle of May, I'm going to go to Harvard. I never went to high school. So I'm going to go to Harvard to do a business class at Harvard for three weeks. And why do I have to do it? No, I probably don't going to learn that much. Maybe I learn a lot. I don't know. <laughs> but I think it will be an interesting experience. Life is a journey. And I think to go from A to Z, It's what is exciting. We all know where we end up, but that journey, I think, we should make the most out of it. And for me, it's about learning new things, getting inspired, and getting evolved, and teaching a lot of young people the right thing. So now, with Rogue, with our new test kitchen menu, I can challenge all my young chefs. I said, "You wanna cook there? You have to come up with something super. If you fail once." You're not invited anymore. And then if we have other chefs from uh, different countries come, like we are doing a dinner with uh, Massimo Portura at, at the Bel Air Hotel in beginning of May. So maybe then I tell Massimo or somebody like that or the uh, Roca brothers, uh, Juan or somebody, and say, okay, just cook something for 10 people. Yeah. We make a dinner. We'll, I give you as many cooks as you want. So I think it would be a great experience. And mainly, it will be a great experience for me, but mainly for our customers. They say, "Wow, I never saw thing like that in my life." It
0: sounds like, it and will be we great won't hit. make
1: any money with it. No, really? No, it's impossible because if you have eight employees serving eight people, and our price will be one hundred sixty-five or one hundred ninety-five dollars. Maybe if we have a lot of truffles or something, it would be a little more. But it won't be that expensive, really, for that experience. Sure.
0: So so the point is not to make money. The point is The point
1: is to inspire everybody. And when they all work together, you know, normally each chef works in his restaurant. They're busy and everything. So I take them out for one day, and they have to do something different. And then they see the chef from Spago Tetsu, who is very inventive, and he does something different. And everybody works on it and... Uh, uh, do, does something different. So I think, it, to me, it's very exciting. And I learned a lot. Like Tetsu made the other day a sea cucumber, you know, and he bought dried ones. They are like rocks. Then you have to soak them for, I don't know, three or five days, and then you have to braise them. And then, like, he stuffed them like, like a sausage in a way. And they had, it had this amazing texture around, and you have the sausage in the middle, and they made it more Japanese-Chinese style. And it was delicious, but it was something I never would have thought of.
0: Yeah. So if it's a successful dish that's on the menu at Rogue, will it then find its way to the menu at Spargo? Or is this just sort of the idea of a creative exercise? And we don't
1: you... We don't know yet. It might be. It might not be. You know, but it's very creative. And if we can do it because at Spargo, at the Bel Air, you know, we have to serve 150 customers a night. So the so
0: scale is very the different. The scale
1: is different. Some things, maybe you can adapt some things. So we'll see. I think I will be very happy if we find some interesting dishes. We can put them at the airport maybe. So sure. Yes. Yeah.
2: Sea cucumbers stuffed From with sausage. From the AC counter to LAX, yeah. Yes.
1: That's, that's yeah. what yeah. I'm doing trajectory. my –
0: my changeover at O'Hare, I will stop in for a braised sea cucumber. It's
1: perfect. It's I great. know, it's perfect. This is all with, I want with, from air travel. With a, with a glass of red wine and you're done. Oh, done. Perfect.
0: It's perfect. Well, Wolfgang, we have arrived at the portion of our show that we call the lightning round, where we have a guest question asker ask you a couple of questions and you can answer them however you like. Okay. Today, our guest question asker is the editor of Eater LA, Matt King, who okay. has some questions for you. Matt, welcome to the Eater Upsell.
2: Hey Wolfgang, this is Matthew Kang, the editor of Eater Los Angeles,
1: and I have some lightning round questions for you. What is the single most perfect airport food? Well, I will really think in the airport you really have little time to decide where to go. To me, if I have a good, well-done pizza, I think I'm happy because if I don't well, eat it, of course
0: you would say that. Yeah. Because you sell good pizzas in an airport.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Because, why do I sell them? Because I like them. I wouldn't make pizza if I wouldn't eat them myself. I remember in the old time, I used to go on a trip to Europe, go on a vacation, come back. I went the same night I came back, I went to Spago and said, I want a prosciutto pizza with extra chilies on top and nice and crispy. Now, I wouldn't eat a pizza if it's yellow looking. I like the crust really brown, so it's really cooked well done, so To me, that's perfect because then if I don't eat everything, I can take it with me and finish it on the plane. I had had one of your
2: uh, LAX pizzas in November and thought it was really great. Uh, Very nice little little, uh, reprieve from the, the drudgery of travel there, you know?
1: Yeah. I think so. It's a great thing. And that's why I think why we do well at the airport. And I actually was in Cancun. We have a restaurant in Cancun at the airport there. And I, nobody knew me there. I had my, my baseball cap on and everything. I stand in line like everybody else. It took me a while. And it took me a while to get the pizza. You know, they were not the swiftest and fastest there. But the pizza was cooked perfectly. And it was tasty. And I said, you know, I forgive them. I waited altogether maybe 25 minutes. But I ate the pizza. I said, you know what? It's a damn good pizza. I was ready to call the manager over there and ream him another thing, you know. But it was so good, I was surprised in my own restaurant. I didn't believe it's going to be that good.
0: Well, thats I I guess that's the goal, right? Uh, That's the goal, totally. So
1: (laughs) after me being upset because it was slow to get to pay, first you have to pay, then you have to wait for the pizza. So I wasn't really happy the way they organized it. But then at the end, product was really good.
0: Matt, what's your next question for Wolfgang Puck?
1: If you were an unknown chef with your dream restaurant that you cooked in every night, where and what would it be? Well, I think it's really difficult to say. I only can speak from my experience. My experience was my dream restaurant. I actually had two in a way. One was Beaumannier in south of France. And when I was there, Raymond Thullier was the chef and owner. He was in his 70s. But... He had six gardeners bringing in the best green beans or the best melons or the best apricots and strawberries and so forth. So all the products were so amazing. Plus, it was in the most beautiful setting. And then when I worked at Maxim's in Paris, it was like the best restaurant. It was like a three-star restaurant, but it was a party every night. And you had everybody coming there. Like I remember after lunch, like Salvador Dali used to stand outside with his cane waiting for his his car, or Yul Brynner used to be out there, or Marcello Mastroianni and Catherine Deneuve, or or Charlie Chaplin, or I remember seeing the Kennedy family there. So to me, and the music played, like if you had a birthday at Maxim's, they had an orchestra, like a five-piece or six-piece orchestra with the violins and everything. They came, they played, and then by 11 o'clock at night, they removed the table and they had a dance floor so you could dance. So for a great party, that would be good.
2: I want that restaurant to be. Yeah, yeah that sounds like something out of a Hollywood film.
1: <laughs> you know what? It's to- the decor, you know, Belle Epoque decor from the 1900s. It was beautiful done. Now, after a while, it got tired too. You know, then Cardin bought it and it wasn't the same anymore. But that was way after I left. But I thought it was an interesting thing. Now, There are many places, really, you could think, I would love to cook. I would love to do something there. But the experiences I had in these two places, I think, taught me a lot. Uh, Beaumannier about being different, having passion, having passion for the ingredients. And at Maxim's, I learned really the classic part of cooking. I learned how to do a great foie gras or a terrino fish or how to sauté something the way it should be. So they had a lot of more classical ingredients, also classical preparation. And I was very happy to actually have worked there.
2: Awesome. So I think we have another question from Matt.
1: If you had to host a show that wasn't about food, what would you want it to be about? Maybe I would like to be like Dr. Ruth Wertheimer talk about sex.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay, let's ask you a sex question and okay. give you um, –
2: Oh my god. Oh what, my god. <laughs> we're
0: all we're all being so prudish. Okay, how about, okay, this? How about this? Yeah,
2: all right. Uh, what's the best what's the best time to be amorous? Before or after dinner? Oh,
0: that is a great question. If you want if you want a night of like really good uh, not a night, if you want an experience of very
2: wild
1: passionate, passionate lovemaking.
0: lovemaking. Is this a pre-dinner activity or a post-dinner activity?
1: You know, for me probably it would be in the afternoon with the curtains half closed, the sun shining in just a little bit, the right light, and have a bottle of good champagne, make love and have a good time, and then relax and then go out to dinner.
0: Like a little nap and then yeah. just like dinner. That's, yeah, that's
1: scientifically dinner.
2: probably the best answer, I'd say. Yeah. So it's a pre pre-dinner move.
1: I know, because I think if you go to a restaurant and you eat a lot, You're less in the mood afterwards. Now, maybe if you meet the girl or the boy the first night or the second night, it's different. But if you are with somebody for a while, it's different than, you know, then you say, oh, you go home. Oh, my God, I ate too much and everything. But I think uh, to me, the afternoon is the best time. No matter what, if I go out to dinner or not. Just across
0: the board, afternoon is the best time. Yeah,
1: the afternoon is the best time. It's very good advice. And it feels more luxurious in a way. You you spend the time, you relax, you don't feel like, okay, now the night is here, it's 11 o'clock. So I think uh, that's my advice about uh, lovemaking and sex.
0: All right. Thank you. Wow. I don't know how we're going to top that, but Matt, I understand you have one more question (laughs) that will absolutely be, excuse the pun, (laughs) anticlimactic.
1: I'm sorry, guys. I'm fired. I'm firing myself. Um, (laughs) Maybe we have Ryan answer that question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One more question for Wolfgang Puck, please. Lay it on us, Matt.
1: What trait from young kitchen Wolfgang has the public never seen? Well, I really believe that I used to be very difficult when I was very young. When I worked in south of France, I was a chef when I was 20 years old in a one-star restaurant. The owners could not come in the kitchen And ask me something. They had to write me a letter. I didn't want them in the kitchen. I was so mean and so crazy. Like one day they came in and told me something I didn't like. I took a bunch of plates and smashed them on the floor. It was like a Greek restaurant. Wow. Like 10 plates at least broken on the floor. And I said, I'm not talking to you. And they were like 50 or 60 years old. And uh, they just looked at me and left the kitchen. And you got away with it. And I got away with it totally. So then uh, when I went to Maxim's in Paris... I yelled at one guy once and the chef took, took me over and said, the next time you do that, the exit is right here, you're gone. And I was like shocked. I said, what? Because I yelled at this guy or insulted him, you're going to throw me out? And you know what? In a way, at that time, I really was so crazy. I was passionate. But I think in a wrong way because I saw people doing it. So you learn from your parents. You learn certain things. Like the first apprentice, you know, when I was an apprentice in Austria, the chef used to slap me, kick me, and not only me, all the other apprentices too.
0: It was a physical, like not just it yelling, physical. it was physical. It was
1: physical. When I was a Beaumannier, even there, Thuilier, like if you sent him, for example, we had this uh, – Small guinea hen, they call them pentado. We made them with the Morel sauce or whatever. So the rotisseur made them, took him off the spit, put it in a little silver casserole. And Julia used to touch them with the back of his hand. It wasn't hot. He threw them across the stove, like, and it fell on the floor or whatever it was. It didn't really matter. One day, I still remember, There was we made a gratin of lobster in a big, nice casserole. It was maybe for eight people. And he was there at the pass at the table where they pick up. Who's picking that up? Who is picking them up? Nothing. He just stood there like that. Then finally, he took it and said, open the dining room door. He took the thing, the castle, and slid it into the dining room. It went in like that. Like on the floor. On the floor. In
0: a dining room full of people.
1: In a dining room with people. I don't know how many people were there, but he he was totally crazy. That is totally crazy. I know. So you're saying, would I act that way today? No. Would I have done that when I was young? Yeah, because I saw people doing it. Well... So now... I'm very easygoing. Yeah,
0: so, <laughs> no, you're very chill. Yeah, No, it's great. It, this is all very relaxed. I feel like we've gone from, you know, you've given us very, very actionable sex advice, which is yeah. terrific. Mm-hmm. Totally dragged our critic, which I'm so than, excited about. More important
1: about. than the food yeah. advice?
0: No, oh, for sure. We should have you back for just like the Wolfgang okay. Pond yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. sex We
2: talked to hour. a lot Actually, of chefs, but none of them give us sex advice. I'll put it that way, you know?
1: Well, food and sex go very well together. You know that.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: Your poets have to have passion for it, and you have to enjoy it.
2: Maybe not at you the know, same time, of, but yes. In, in I don't know. Whatever floats your boat. That's true. Yeah. Some people are into, you yeah. know
0: those red strawberries Johnny Carson was really into like
2: yeah,
1: yeah.
0: No, who no, knows no. what he's doing with
1: those they call it today food porn you That's know right. food porn That's is right. a big thing right about uh, talking about food like a sexual experience
0: yeah. well if any of our listeners want some sex advice from Wolfgang Puck drop us a line <laughs> okay. upsell I, at eater.com we'll, we'll get you back I we'll, know you're
1: going to get more listeners yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll,
0: Wolfgang Puck will answer all of your sex questions on a future episode of the eater upsell I'm just declaring this uh, you come and visit you're, me
1: over at cut yeah. and, uh, we can talk we'll come directly. to cut we'll
0: eat a steak. We'll talk about doing it. Yeah. It's perfect. This is my dream. Yeah. Well, Wolfgang Puck, thank you so much for thank joining you. us thank on the you Eater so Upsell. Much, if our yeah. listeners want to interact with your food and restaurants and personal brand and cool life, they can find you at thousands of airports. Yeah, and you go
1: to our website, you see whatever we do. You go to WolfgangPuck.com, you see the Rogue Restaurant there, you see already some of the dishes we did in the past. You don't have the same one, but I think It's really, in a way, a good way now, you know, with all this new media to find out what people are doing.
0: Yep, Wolfgang Puck is everywhere, and you are going to have so much fun interacting with him, especially now that you will think of him every time you have sex in the afternoon.
1: Don't think of me, no. Think about about, (laughs) it. You can think about George Clooney, maybe. Okay. (laughs)
0: Well, Wolfgang Puck, thank you so much for joining us on the Eater Upsell.
1: Okay, thanks, Jeff.
0: Yay! The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulrich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener you thank you for listening to what we do here and thank you for being your beautiful self